Good morning. Good morning. I want to welcome each of you out this morning. It's good to have a front row here of FCAers who are uh, headed off to camp here in a, a, a little while. So we're excited about them. Be praying for them this week. Hope you have a great week. Great week. Um, this, this past Friday morning, I was I always come over here uh, Friday morning and I kind of run through my message and see how it sounds after after it's been written. Then. Um, I was practicing, I got a text, uh, my first time to hear that the Supreme Court had made this decision uh, about Roe v. Wade. And uh, I feel like it's one of those moments, kind of like 9-11, I remember where I was. I think this, I will remember where I was when I first heard of that. It's such an amazing thing that I never, I don't know if any of us ever thought we'd see this uh, reversed. And there are a lot of issues. But I was thinking about that, how do we as Christians deal with that? And instead of taking a victory lap, uh, and that I don't think that's appropriate. I think it is appropriate to thank God uh, for what he does and how he blesses and also recommit ourselves to meeting the needs of those in crisis, whatever it may be. And we have been partners for many years with Assurance. Uh, we will continue to do that. I called them up, I encouraged them, uh, told them we were praying for them. I encourage you to do that. And we'll look forward to seeing what else we can do to partner with them uh, because the crisis is still there. It didn't go away. It maybe only got, got greater. And uh, we need to make sure that we, uh, that we celebrate um, what God does, but also stand ready to be available for him and to help him out in his work and ministry. So um, we, we thank God for being good. We're in a study in the book of 1 Corinthians, and uh, today we're going to take another chunk of that. And, uh, you know, in the garden before Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, uh, he, he prayed to his father. He said these words, Father, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So Jesus knew that his disciples were going to face some challenges, and that he knew that there would be two dangers for Christians. One of them was what we might call fundamentalism, and the other was what we might call liberalism. And fundamentalism says we don't engage in culture. Uh, we don't get cable TV. We don't listen to certain music. We don't go to movies. We, we're, we're not friends with non-Christians. We circle the wagons, and we just want to make sure that we take care of us and ours, and we protect ourselves from the world. That's fundamentalism, and obviously there are extremes on that. Liberalism is the opposite. Liberalism says, hey, we want to be Christians, but we're just going to live like everybody else. We're going to live just like the world. We want to fit in. We can justify about anything we do. Uh, about our freedom, and uh, we just want to do what we want to do and be like the world. And you know, Jesus prayed against both of those extremes. He said, don't leave the world. The world needs you. The world around us needs you and I to be in the middle of it. Be engaged in culture, but understand that there are some things that culture does that you cannot do because they are sin. And realize that your influence is going to make a huge difference in the world around you. Just your presence there just the fact that you are a part of and rub elbows with people every day is going to make a difference. You have to make a difference. So please live carefully. Please God first, but be considerate about other people, younger believers, non-believers who are watching you. Now, that's kind of the setting for our scripture today. And in Paul's day, there was a really big issue that you and I find it hard to even identify with. Uh, but it was a big issue to them. You know, they didn't have the issues, some of the ones that we have, but they had this big issue. And specifically the issue, the controversial question was, should we eat meat offered to idols? And I would say that none of you ever thought about that. Probably none of you ever pondered that. 
None of you ever worried about demon meat. So let's just put that aside and think a little bit about that. I see our FCA group are leaving. I didn't offend anybody. They just have to go. All right. All right. So um, we'll get our heads back in the game. All right. Okay. So I know that that demon meat is not a real big deal to you right here today. All right. But it was an issue in that day. It was very controversial, in fact. And in that, we find a lot of principles that can help us today as we try to determine how do we live in the world around us? How do we interact with people? What is our testimony supposed to look like? How do we think about that? So let's jump in and read 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul says, now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So then about certain eating food offered to idols, sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. So there's a couple things that Paul does. First of all, Paul establishes the fact there is but one true God. There is only one God. And all these other gods, this would be a small g God, are only in the minds of the people who worship them. Now he doesn't deny that there are gods that people worship. And today there are gods. And in those days, it was many of, many of them were like a statue or an object of some sort. Now today we would laugh at that, but the reality is there are plenty of gods that people serve today. Money, power, sex, people, popularity, all sorts of gods that are out there in, in people's lives, but they're not true gods. They're, they're really in the minds of people. Obviously there are spiritual powers, there are powers that the power of Satan and of Satan's demons, but, but Paul says these are nothing compared to the true God. And there are believers who are young in their faith who are struggling with this, who are struggling with their loyalty. They know their loyalty should be to God, but there are all these other things that, that are tugging for their attention, and there are things that they have spent time in the past focusing on that they are tempted to go back to. They're struggling with what to believe and how to leave their old belief systems behind. And so Paul says in this day and age, there was this big controversy about idols and meat offered to idols. So let me just kind of summarize what it might have looked like in that day. Imagine if you would, that there are two first century Christians named Demetrius and Clement. And we would not use those names today, but that would be pretty common names in those days. And both of these guys are former idolaters. They've been saved by faith in Christ Jesus. They've given their lives. They're trying to turn from the past And Demetrius, he shuns everything to do with his old way of life, including the meat that was sold in the marketplace. Most of that meat that was sold there had been offered to idols in a pagan temple and then taken in the market to sell at a lower price. So in that days, meat was expensive, like today, right? Um, but, uh, But there would be meat sold in the marketplace that had been offered in these pagan temples. There were plenty of them there in Corinth. 
and they would offer this up, and then they would take the meat that wasn't uh, used or eaten in the celebration and take it to the marketplace, and then they would sell it. For Demetrius, eating that meat would con- uh, constitute a return back to his paganism. Clinton, on the other, uh, Clement, on the other hand, avoids the pagan temples. He doesn't go there to worship. He refuses to participate in the pagan festivals, but he has no problem eating the meat from the sacrifices and from the market there. He doesn't even connect that with the pagan worship. Clement understands correctly that an idol has no power to corrupt good meat, and for him, eating such meat is a non-issue. Just doesn't matter at all to him. So one day, as both of them are in the marketplace, they're walking along together, and uh, Demetrius stops and buys a hamburger, if you will, uh, there, and people know, wow, this probably, because of this seller, this probably had been sacrificed to idols. Demetrius is horrified. He can't imagine that Clinton's doing that, that, but he laughs it off, and he, in fact, encourages Demetrius to, to try a bite himself. When Demetrius hesitates, Clement cuts off the piece and offers him a bite of it and gives it to him. And with the pressure a little bit, Demetrius, you know, is kind of folds and he's emboldened by Clement's confidence. So he eats the meat. Now, let me ask you in this scenario, who sinned here? Did anybody sin in this scenario? And here's the answer. Biblically, both of them have sinned. Both of them did. Clement sinned by violating the conscience of a fellow believer, someone who was a little bit, who, who was weaker in some ways than himself. And Demetrius sinned because he essentially returned to idolatry. He knew what it was in his mind, and his conscience was telling him it was wrong, but he did it anyway. And more importantly than that, Demetrius is learning how to ignore his conscience, which is a very dangerous thing to learn. Now, most of us were probably never, ever struggle with demon meat, more than likely. But the reality is, is that we are all going to deal with matters of the conscience, matters of how do we exercise our personal freedom, and how do we deal with stronger or weaker brothers in Christ. See, the people there in Corinth, they were like us. They were living in a pagan culture. They were from various backgrounds. Some of them probably uh, had been believers a long time. Some of them were very new believers. They had some very strict systems, some of them in the past, some of them were very lax. Some of them didn't have a lot of exposure at all to truth and God's word. And so they were trying to learn how do we find our footing and how do we live in this world? You know, Paul had written in 1 Corinthians chapter six, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not beneficial necessarily. The Bible's clear on some things, but it's kind of vague on other things. And it says, you know, you may have some freedom to do some things, but never everything is appropriate or not everything is really beneficial for you or not everything is wise or not everything is considerate of other people. So what is acceptable behavior for a Christian? What can we do and what can we not do? Because culture, based on your history and your tradition, will tell you a lot of different things, that some things are fine and other things you really shouldn't do. So let me throw some of those things out practically and see if any of them kind of connect with our question today. Should a Christian smoke? Should a Christian drink? Should a Christian get a tattoo? Should a Christian go to R-rated movies? Should a Christian listen to certain music? Should a Christian homeschool, Christian school, or go to public school? Now, those are just some 
controversial things that I throw out there. There are probably many others, but we probably all have an opinion, at least on one of those things, whether they're right or wrong or fine or indifferent or whatever. And we might even have an opinion on certain people who do those things. But how do we think about these things biblically? How do we take this issue in that day and relate it today and ask ourselves, how do I view things that are controversy and things that Christians disagree on? Well, let me help you do that. Let me offer four questions that can help decide our participation in culture. Here's the first thing. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? The Bible is the Word of God, and the Bible is truth. And we are a church that still believes the Bible is truth, and we're going to preach what the Bible has to say. We believe that the Bible is universally true. It doesn't really matter what culture you're in, what time you're in, and history, your gender, your age, your preferences, your experiences. The Bible is all true. And let me say there, there are some things in the Old Testament, there are some obscure laws that sometimes people throw out that were written specifically to the Jewish people to keep them separate from other people. But there are a lot of other things, and in fact, most real issues we have, things that God calls sin in both the Old and the New Testament. Things like lying and stealing and pride and greed and coveting and murder and fornication, adultery and homosexuality and lust and rape and jealousy, anger, envy and drunkenness. A lot of things the Bible universally from beginning to end condemns. And so we take that to be truth. God's laws are written against these things. And when we break these laws, we sin. And the Bible says that sin separates us from God. We have to understand the authority and the power of the Bible. Now, culture today, as you probably know, has come up with all kind of new words and new philosophies that kind of soften the same old sins, but these are all universal sins for all people, all times, places, and is applicable to everyone. And to be honest, to kind of understand it, it's kind of like, it's kind of like the progressiveness in Christianity. It's kind of like the progressiveness in politics. I don't want to get too deep in that. But, but some people say, we have a constitution, and that's what we should follow. Others say, yeah, we have one, but, but we don't, we're not going to live in that. We're going to reform, reshape that. There are people who say, we have a Bible that we believe in, but there are others who say, but the Bible doesn't relate to us today. So we believe that the Bible is truth of all time. So if the Bible says it's wrong, we're not going to do it. If the Bible is silent on something or it doesn't forbid it, then you may be free to do it. Maybe. Because there's some other questions to ask as well, right? Here's the second question. I may be free to do it, but should I do this thing? Should I do this thing? What does my conscience say about this? See, in addition to Scripture, God has given each of us a conscience. Our conscience is internal and unique to each of us. Someone said our conscience is kind of like a rudder on a boat. It helps you steer through difficulty. It keeps you from drifting, and it keeps you on the right path. It takes you somewhere. And if you program your conscience correctly, guided by the Bible, guided by human decency, by concern for other people, and by obviously the, the law around you, it can give you good advice. Now, if you don't program your conscience, you can be blinded to truth and everything else, and, and people can get lost in that. But our conscience is important. I believe that the Holy Spirit works through our conscience to convict us of certain things, things that would be a sin to us if we did them, but might not necessarily be a sin to everybody else. Now, let me explain that. 
in a very controversial thing that you probably have your own opinion about. And that is the opinion, that is the issue of alcohol. You know, I wish the Bible would say that we shouldn't drink alcohol. I just wish that personally. I know living in Bourbon country, that's a strong thing to say, isn't it? Um, But I wish the Bible would say that, and here's why. I've seen the damage that alcohol can do. I've seen drunk driving accidents. I've seen divorce and spouse and child abuse, criminal behavior, fetal alcohol syndrome in infants. And one time I went, and some of you all went with me a few years ago, a few, and we cleaned up a house where a man had bled to death from alcohol poisoning. I mean, he died in his house and he bled out because he couldn't stop drinking. That was not a good experience. I don't see a lot of good in it personally. That's my opinion. But you know what? The Bible does not condemn alcohol. It doesn't. In fact, there's no doubt that they drank wine in Bible times. No doubt. It says it. And it wasn't non-alcoholic. I'm pretty confident. Jesus' first miracle was the turning water to wine in the Bible. So, I mean, it's kind of hard to argue with that. But the Bible does condemn drunkenness. It does condemn drunkenness. You know, I have some pretty strong feelings about it. And for me to drink would probably, would be a sin. That's what my conscience tells me. Not everybody feels that way, however. I know that's not true for everybody because some people can drink in moderation and appreciate a fine wine or a good aged bourbon. And that is fine. That's okay. There's freedom. There is freedom in that. For me to do it, be wrong. For you to do it, if your conscience doesn't give you that, uh, doesn't limit it, that's fine. There's permission in that. That's a really clear, I hope, example there. Let me hurry to say also, the law says that a person must be 21 years of age to drink. So underage drinking is a crime as well as a sin. All right. So understand that clarity. There's a limit on that uh, and, and to get that. And there are other things as well that your conscience may call you on. You may be called to do something that nobody else even thinks about. Let me give you another example. In the 1970s, my brother-in-law collected Beatle memorabilia. He was obsessed with it. Albums, books, magazines, pictures, posters, everything. And he was a really young Christian. And, um, and one interview they gave, the, the Beatles gave, really troubled him. John Lennon in the interview said, Christianity will go, it will vanish and shrink. We're more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. He made that comment. Some of you probably remember that in an interview. And I mean, they were, if you're too young to remember the Beatles, then they were really, really big uh, in that day. And my brother-in-law was just, I mean, he was obsessed with it. But that quote bothered him. He was a very young Christian, and he knew that the only competition that Jesus had in his life was his Beatle collection, the only competition. And so one day he came to the conclusion that he had to give it away. He didn't sell it, he gave it away. He gave the entire collection to our minister at the time who was leaving to go to California to be a music minister out there. And my brother-in-law asked him, will you take this and put it to a good use? Will you do something with this um, collection that maybe will help people understand the dangers of rock music? Now, that was a big sacrifice, but it was a conscience move on his part. His conscience told him he had to do that. Nobody suggested it to him. Nobody. He came up with it all on his own. And you should always listen to your conscience. I mean, that was an amazing decision, wasn't it? Think about the value of it, especially to a young guy in that age. But you know what? Your conscience may also change 
as you get more mature in Christ. Your conscience may change. So 20 years later, later, fast forward 20 years, mid-90s, a ministry in Ohio, and that minister has moved back to this area. And I asked him, he was a good friend, I said, hey, whatever happened to that collection of Beatle memorabilia? He goes, well, I moved it to California, and when I moved back, I brought it with me. It's in my attic. I said, what are you going to do with that? He said, I don't have any idea what I'm going to do with it. I said, I got an idea. 20 years later, my brother-in-law is a pretty strong Christian. I said, why don't we give it back to him? And so we did that for Christmas. We wrapped up many boxes and, and gave them to him. He was like a kid in a candy shop. I mean, can you just imagine that? Opening those things he hadn't seen in 20-some years. And the value of that at this point, I'd say it's, it's pretty significant as well. But see, now he was a much more mature Christian and they didn't have any competition with his faith in Jesus. See, each of us have to make decisions about certain things that as we mature in our faith. And you also have to be careful. Here's the hard part. You have to be careful not to bind other people by your own conscience, making rules for them that are not in the Bible and expecting everybody else to obey these rules because that would be sin for you. That's the part of trying to be a stronger Christian and understanding that. What does the Bible say? What does your conscience say? But there's a couple other questions too. What does your weakness require? What does your personal weakness require? We have many strengths and weaknesses, all of us do. Some things we're spiritually strong in. Some things we're not tempted in at all. And other things we are weak in. And we need to learn how to acknowledge and avoid. For example, I'm not tempted at all by alcohol, drugs, pills, or cigarettes. But I need to stay out of bakeries. Gluttony is a sin too, right? Recognize where your weakness is. Not only that, I, like most guys, need to stay away from pornography. Need to stay away, far away from it. I don't want to be near it. I don't want to see it from a distance. I don't want the hint. I don't have a struggle with that, but like most men, we're tempted by it. We need to stay away from that. You know your strengths and weaknesses. So if there's something that you're going to do that's going to open you up to some temptation, be smart and don't do that. Where we are strong, we have freedom, but we, where we are weak, you need to restrict your freedom so you don't sin. And as you mature, hopefully you grow up and understand that. Number four, what are my friend's needs or what does my friend need? Here in America, we are obsessed with our rights and my rights can trump everybody else's rights. I have the right to do that. Our rights and freedom as a Christian may come from our strengths and from our knowledge. Paul says, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a God. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. Here's the thing. We can't choose our freedom over our friends. That's wrong. That's a sin. That's what um, Clement was doing in, in the little scenario. He was choosing his freedom over his friends because he knew his friend had a struggle with that. If you have a friend over and you have freedom in alcohol, but your friend is a recovering alcoholic, don't serve drinks. Don't do that. Even if you have freedom and you strengthen that area. 
Because you can lead other people to sin and by so doing, sin yourself because you become a stumbling block to them. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and you wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Since you're, so you're not just being inconsiderate of their weakness, you are actually sinning by causing them to sin. Exercising your freedom and your rights creates what the Bible calls a stumbling block to someone with a weaker conscience. Now, what is a stumbling block? Well, a stumbling block is an action taken by a stronger brother or sister that although it would ordinarily qualify as a permissible act of freedom, influences a weaker brother or sister to sin against his conscience. That's the biblical meaning of a stumbling block here. Now, we've talked a little bit about the weaker brother, but what does it mean to be the weaker brother? What does it mean to be a stronger brother or a weaker brother? We're going to talk about this a little bit later on in the series, but let's talk about a weaker brother right now. The weaker brother or sister is weak in four ways. First of all, they're weak in conviction. In their conviction, Paul says, anyone, except anyone who is weak in faith, but whoever doubts stands condemned if he eats because his eating is not from a conviction and everything that's not from a conviction is sin. So if we don't, if we don't act by our convictions, we don't stand on those, then we, we're sinning. That was in Romans. That's another, uh, another whole other book. He talks about the same thing there. So the weaker brother isn't fully convinced of the rightness of his liber- action, of his liberty, so he doesn't have convictions in that. Secondly, he's weak in biblical knowledge. This is where Paul says, however, not everyone has this knowledge. Some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat food offered to an idol, their conscience being wheat is defiled. So in other words, uh, they didn't know what the the truth. They didn't have the Bible in that day as we do, but, but they didn't have, they don't, a weaker brother doesn't have biblical knowledge of this. The weak didn't know that an idol was nothing. It meant something to them. And so Paul's saying just avoid that at all. They're also weak in their conscience, meaning that they feel condemned for doing things that aren't biblically wrong. Remember uh, Demetrius, he, he didn't want to eat this meat. It wasn't wrong, but he felt like it was wrong. So his conscience was weak. It's overly sensitive. And then, then fourthly, they're weak in their will, meaning that he can be influenced to act contrary to his conscience. You've been around people who it doesn't matter how much they were tempted, they just said no, but there are other people who are easily tempted and they will fall for what they know is wrong. If, if there's enough peer pressure around them, if, if you, you know, convince them or they convince themselves or whatever, they're, they're just weak in the conscience. Weakness of will was evidence in the Corinthian situation since Paul said, for if someone sees you, the one who has this knowledge, sinning and dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? Now, you're, you're going to ask the question, what was this Christian doing in an idol's temple anyway, to start with, eating the meat? And the question might be as something as simple as, many times those temples were probably like reception halls, and it might be a wedding reception or something that they were going to. And they happened to be in this place. They weren't worshiping idols, but it was, it was in this place. And they, 
there were people around them and they saw what they were doing. So their, their conscience was weak. Paul summarizes this principle in Romans chapter 15. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So if you are the, consider yourself to be a stronger brother, what you're saying is, I love my weaker brother enough that I'm going to bear with their feelings and I'm not going to please myself. I'm going to sacrifice my rights in some cases. Instead of doing what we want, consider and accommodate other people who might struggle with that. And that kind of brings us the principle that love limits liberty. Love limits liberty. Paul says, not everything may be, free, uh, may be uh, permissible, but not, not beneficial, not smart, not wise, not considered of other people. Because when you cause a weaker brother or sister to stumble, you sin against them. And in so doing, you also sin against Christ. And Paul said, what sounds like the extreme, but he, but he said this, that I would never want to do that. In fact, I would never eat meat again. I wouldn't eat any, any kind of meat because somebody might think I was eating meat offered to idols. I would never do that rather than cause someone to fall. That's love, isn't it? Love limits liberty. So here's a quick recap of what Paul's saying. Number one, having the right to do something doesn't mean that we're free to do it in every circumstance, regardless of its effects on others. Secondly, the believer's liberty in Christ can and should be voluntarily limited in order not to cause a weaker brother to sin by violating his conscience. Liberty is limited by love. Number three, maintaining the unity of the spirit in the bond of love may require a believer to give up his personal right to do a thing. Proverbs chapter 133, how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. And then fourthly, we should avoid anything that would make a weak Christian think less of his faith or would make an unsaved person feel more at ease in their sin. Can I just repeat that? We should avoid anything that would make a weak Christian think less of his faith or that would make an unsaved person feel more at ease in his sin. Every Christian's responsible to search the scripture and let the Holy Spirit lead you into making decisions, especially where there's freedom. But remember this, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and you should treat it as such. The Holy Spirit lives in you. What you put in your body, what you ingest, what you listen to, what you see, all those things you are pro, you're putting into the temple of the Holy Spirit. And whatever you put in is going to come out in some way. And that question isn't really out of date. That was from the 90s. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? And let me add another question there that would not really fit on a bracelet. What would you do if Jesus were right there beside you? What would you do if Jesus were there beside you? And by the way, he is. He is beside you. Remember that non-believers and younger Christians are watching you, and you will influence them by your actions. You know, I believe that Jesus really personified this principle. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for one's friend. And Jesus did that. He didn't just live a model life. He didn't just avoid doing things that might offend someone or cause someone to stumble. Jesus literally laid his life down for us. He died for us. He sacrificed everything. His love limited his freedom and even his life. And that's the crux of the gospel, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that we might be forgiven, we might be saved, we might have eternal life. 
And that's what we offer to you today, a God who loves you so much that he would give his best gift, Jesus, to die for you, would sacrifice his life that we might be saved. And if you have never given your life to Christ, you know, obviously the Christian life has some limitations, right? We talked about that today. But because of the love of Christ, we are compelled to serve him and we are compelled to live for him. And that's kind of what the call that's on our life. So this morning, if you've never given your life to Christ, you want to talk about this fascinating, high-level living that Jesus offered, I'd love to do that, be available. Uh, we're going to go to a time of decision now. We have uh, uh, jo- Joanne, I believe. Joanne was scheduled, but I think she just walked out. So she may not be available uh, to pray with you. But I'm going to be up here front. I know some of the other ladies will step up. Zach will be up here uh, to share with you and be available for prayer. Or if you just want to come up and pray and just, just maybe some of the things we talked about or maybe something totally different on your life, we, let, we invite you to come forward in response. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. And Lord, as we come to worship you, we want to lay our lives down. Father, we don't ever claim that the Christian life is easy or, uh, um, or doesn't require something from us. It is a life of sacrifice. And uh, Father, it, we, it, it's modeled after the life of our, our Savior who gave his life for us. So Lord, we come today and, and Father, we are willing to serve you. We want to be your people. We want to be obedient to you. We want to be considerate of others around us and be faithful, Lord, uh, and not sin or cause anyone else to as well. And, uh, and we're, we need your help to do that. God, we love you. We worship you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.